Hello, Steve. It's great to see you again. I just got back from a week in Ukraine. <sighs> Man, <laughs> living without water for a few hours really shakes you up. Something like 80% of people in Kiev were without water uh, this week at some point. At least 150 odd billion worth of damage. I don't know how Ukraine recovers from here. Oh, it, it sounds like it's just it's just turning into scorched earth, earth, war, earth warfare, which is what so which always worried me about the whole invasion because whatever Putin thinks about Ukraine, Ukrainians have got their own attitudes, and this is basically being invaded by a foreign power, and they will presumably fight as much as the Afghan Afghanis did, and that means a scorched earth outcome. I just hope that when you know all the aid and world powers come back to help rebuild Ukraine, that. Ukraine doesn't lose sovereignty, which maybe this has happened in the past a lot once countries go back in. Well, you know, if you, if you might imagine that for Germany and Japan, but they both did fairly well out of the reconstruction mm. after the Second World War. So um, uh, the question of whether you actually get the level of funding necessary to make that possible from the, from the West, and that's where the question marks might apply. They're happy to pay for, for weapons, but not so happy to pay for reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So if you were in charge of, a, say, a new Marshall Plan for Ukraine, how would you go about distributing the, the reconstruction efforts? Well, you've got to start with, uh, with basic infrastructure. That's obviously the most important thing, and that's what the Russians are targeting right now. And you have to do it with grants, not with loans. Uh, I, just, I, I dread the thought of loans being issued because that then means the country has debt in a currency which it can't create itself and that just sets you up for failure so the whole idea of a marshall plan is that it's uh largest the the uh the west effectively enabling uh, a country like ukraine to reconstruct by buying by base by basically giving it the physical goods that it needs so this the, you know america self-finances the provision of american technology to ukraine and so on unless it's done that way then the financial dynamics can overwhelm the any benefit of of uh, initial repairs to infrastructure. So in history, there's been something called like the Lend-Lease program, but mm. historically it seems that some of those Lend-Lease things, they weren't actually paid back. So is that, is that almost like a grant in itself? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the the, the whole idea was you, you, during the Second World War, the Americans had to sell to the American public the idea of, uh, of, of uh, providing uh, support to Britain when America still had the isolationist, which I wish it still had, but the isolationist mentality was still there. Why should we help out? Oh, we're not really. We're, we're lending them and they're going to pay us back. And then once America got dragged into the war by Japan, then you uh, then those old worries disappeared and you could therefore let that, uh, that, that you know, apparent debt become a gift instead. Do you think that Ukraine will be able to get the investment that it kind of deserves, even though you have this sort of, you know, I, I don't know how long this tension between the West and Russia will, ha- will happen. So, I mean, people can have the best atten- intentions towards Ukraine, but if people still think there's going to be like a war, maybe the, the investment that the this democratic country deserves it won't actually flow in eventually. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be relying upon the private sector. I mean, you know, this is one situation where the government completely dominates because the government's set the parameters in terms of whether there's going to be military conflict or not uh, and whether you can prevent it. So there's, uh, you know, and it, it's, it's not exactly safe going in behind uh, military 
a cover when you know that there's a country right next door that might take that as an offensive move. So you, you, you really, this has to be government-led. I've met quite a lot of refugees in Ukraine and um, at the start of the, the war, most of the people that had a lot of that money were the ones that were, were fleeing to the towns in the West. But now we're seeing even like poorer and poorer refugees coming because you know, when you're poor and you're all, all, everything you own is in your house, then you're less reluctant to, to leave in a sense. But uh, it's very hard for the West to sort of grow, sort of maintain this level of interest, of support, because, you know, every, every, when the war started it's, and everyone went sens- sensibilities, and then, you know, as I think, I think people just get used to it, and that's, I'm really worried that people are going to get used to this war and then just forget about us in Ukraine. Well, that, that, that tend, does happen. I mean, that was absolute front-page news, but it can't remain front-page news and it becomes a war of attrition, and that's where we seem to be now. So in many ways, like the war in Afghanistan was the same sort of story. And, and then just because it went on and on and on, it, it falls into the, the background and is, isn't uh, something people pay attention to. And it's then only whenever events from the war threaten, you know, survivability, the rest of the rest of society, that you get any response. So, you know, things like the um, blowing up Nord, the Nord 2 pipeline, then it gets back into the attention again. Yeah, you know, in that sense, the, the Ukrainian government has to do, you know, get absolutely solid assurances that it's going to continue receiving funds from the governments who are funding it right now, uh, regardless of, of future developments. And, uh, you know, whether they, those uh, promises get maintained and when they, if there ever is a post-war uh, is always a moot point, but they, they need to be getting those guarantees now. So if you're a, a Western leader that's involved in supporting Ukraine, like, for example, Boris Johnson, now Rishi Shinak, and other countries, how do you manage this tension between your own population not wanting or struggling to make ends meet and then sending all these billions of pounds to Ukraine? Like, how do you keep doing both, keeping that section well, yeah, of society? That, that, that's, that's pretty much what, uh, what Putin is relying upon because the yeah. energy costs to people on the, uh, the rest of Europe are huge uh, to continue supporting the war. And they're, uh, they're pretty much... The response is coming back from the public, you know, parts of the public, you know, don't continue it. Look, charity begins at home type arguments start to become dominant. And the difficulty about something like this is that you are, because you're providing money from your own country to a foreign country, then you really are dependent upon your own capacity to make export revenue to cover that cost, or you're going to put yourself in a trade deficit because you're literally giving things away. And uh, for countries already running trade deficits like the UK, that's hard to sustain. That then comes up and, and potentially damages their um, uh, you know, capacity to support the country in the first instance. So it is an effective tactic. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the question is what would happen if the West stopped supporting Ukraine? Well, I think Ukraine would still continue fighting. And it may get to that point that uh, you don't have the support anymore, but you've got a determined guerrilla campaign to, to uh, try to unseat the Russians. I think that'll go on regardless with whether the West supports them or not. And if the West wasn't supported, then you'd basically have 
I don't know, three or four times the amount of Ukrainian refugees in Europe. And then... Uh, yeah, there are consequences. To, uh, to, if, if not supporting them doesn't mean you don't continue having costs, definitely. Yeah. Mm. Is there any case for optimism in the world? Because it's pretty bleak right now with China, Taiwan, North Korea, South Korea, Russia, Ukraine, Brazil, potentially. Is there any case for optimism? I'm actually thinking more about the climate situation in general than I think okay. the answer, unfortunately, is no. We've let, we've let ourselves get into this you know, absolute squeeze and things like the war in Ukraine and the energy, uh, the, the importance of energy and the fragility of our system, that's all been caused by the fact we've pushed ourselves two, two generations past where we should have peaked in terms of load on the planet and that, that is going to cause schisms all over the planet. So, um, you know... Optimism. I think they called it hopium these days. The warmer winter this year so far in Europe has certainly helped, you know, um, reduce the energy costs. So there is an upside to, you know, Global a warmer warming. year. Yeah, well, that's, I'm certainly seeing that right now. I, mean, I, I came across from um, Thailand to, first of all, Amsterdam and then London, with, uh, and I just packed in all the warm clothing that I'd taken with me in, in the move out of, uh, out, out of uh, Europe because of COVID. And, uh, and then, you know, I'm finding myself I'm sitting in a flat where I haven't even turned the heating on and where I'm just wearing, like, you know, light clothing, light warm clothing. And that means that, of course, all the emergency actions governments have taken to stock up on natural gas have meant that they haven't, they've been stocking up without, without depleting. So they've now got a large reservoir. What scares me is you know, the potential for a dramatic shift in the location of all these various hot spin-offs uh, that, that are currently keeping Europe warm because we've got a you know, breakdown in the jet stream. It's absolutely crazy. The, the, the jet stream normally isolates the polar cell, which is generally speaking from zero to 30 degrees. Sorry, from 60 to 90 degrees. And then it, with the breakdown in the, in the uh, stability of the jet stream, you've got all these fluctuations. So areas that the subparts, it might be rather than 60 to 90, it's 75 to 90. And then in other areas, rather than being uh, 70, rather than 75 to 90, it becomes 45 to 90 and you get a cold, cold patch. Europe is in a very warm patch right now, and so is America. But it's a slight rotation of those eccentricities in the jet stream, and there could be a very cold hit during winter. That'll make the climate change, and I say, what's going? What about all this climate change? But the result is just the volatility will disturb both people's current uh, comfort here, and also the whole agricultural <coughs> system. So it's you know, absolutely weird times. So are we seeing abnormal patterns in the, the Gulf Stream right now? Yeah, the, the Gulf Stream is weakening. Uh, like the, it's weakened about 20% since uh, 2015. And that's quite scary because if that breaks down, the, the, it, it changes where the heat is, is located on the planet. It doesn't change the actual aggregate amount being absorbed. But it means you get uh, much more heat at the equator and actually the southern hemisphere. Uh, much less heat around Europe because the distribution of tropical heat to the to the um, temperate regions breaks down, 
and that will cause elevated storms, according to James Hansen's work. Uh, that when that last happened about 180,000 years ago, we had superstorms which were generating waves of up to 45 metres um, in regular, ordinary storms, uh, which were throwing boulders weighing several thousand tonne onto the islands in the Bahamas, as he's found records of that. So it, what we'll get out of it is a far more violent climate. So, and then, then also, when that's been modelled by Tim Lenton for the OECD, uh, combined with a two and a half degree temperature increase when we're about you know, 40 to 50% of the way towards that already, sort of halfway there. That predicts a fall in the amount of land surface on the planet that can support wheat from 20% of the planet, not that we use the whole 20% for it, but 20% is viable, to 7%. And this implies famine. So, um, uh, you know, the losing the AMOC plus continuing temperature rises means the sedentary agriculture we've taken for granted uh, that's been the foundation of Western civilization, civilization in general, will break down. So it is quite scary. That kind of reminds me of some scientific papers. Um, I read one part of it on the, a potential war between Pakistan and uh, India, where you had about that 11% reduction in. I think it was sunlight or the growing season, but it caused a massive uh, worldwide famine um, just based on the soot that goes in the atmosphere. Um, they measure soot for whatever reason in something called teragrams, which is, I think it's a million tons. I think so. I think something like a, wind, a war between India and Pakistan would release something like between five or 10 teragrams into the atmosphere. And uh, then you'll look at these circulation models of the soot. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, like climate change. But another paper that I looked at was uh, a, a sort war, which is a, a war between NATO and Russia based on the sort treaty, how much weapons they have, and something mm. like 150 teragrams were released in the atmosphere. And large parts of North America and Russia and Europe had like a 90% a reduction in the growing season. So basically 99% of Britain would starve to death, whereas Australia and um, Africa would be not, not 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 too affected because the circulation patterns of that soup would basically go to the northern hemisphere. I mean, who knows really? I mean, as people are, are sort of ridiculing these uh, some of these computational analyses for whatever reason, but um, research is always getting better on this kind of stuff. So, if somebody wanted to go and you know. I'm just curious to go and maybe look at some of that research on the Gulf Stream, but you said um, that there was a 20% reduction in its energy. Is I guess, where would we go to find out and read that ourselves and look at the data? Well, there's a, there's a report by the OECD produced last year, so OECD in 2021, and that's called Managing Climate Risks Facing Up to Loss and Damages. And that includes, it's a study by scientists, thank God, not by economists. So if you search for that managing climate risks facing up to losses and damages with the OECD, you'll find it. And that gives a very good explanation of how these what are called GCMs, global circulation models, try to model the impact of rising temperature on both rainfall and temperature. And just to uh, anybody who thinks the, what they said coming out of it, the economist IAMs is any salve there. The economist IAMs, as of 2021, still don't include the impact of precipitation. They're just looking at temperature alone. 
So they're leaving out you know, a, a massive component of the weather and then making forecasts about the future. Do not trust IAMs with the global circulation models and that one that I'm mentioning that was used by the OECD, produced by Tim Linton. That, that is far more reliable because it does include how temperature changes affect precipitation. And then, of course, that determines whether you can have successful sedentary agriculture or not. Now, the real worry is that we've had 12,000 years of human civilization depending upon stable weather patterns without realizing just how remarkably stable that Holocene period was. And we're now completely disrupting it in the upwards direction, which will mean that the capacity to maintain sedentary populations may evaporate. So I can say that over the last 38 years I've been alive, it does seem to me that the winters are getting milder. Now, I'm still a skeptic on both sides of this climate change thing, and we've talked about this over email, but I'm trying to be objective. So if, if the winters are getting milder, but the Gulf Stream is getting less strength, how does that happen? Because there's presumably less warm air is coming up from the equator to... It's because, it, because the Gulf Stream hasn't broken down yet. I mean, this, this, this is one of the dangers of amateurs getting involved in areas <laughs> by specs, but it's, pardon me, but I'm, I have to say that. I'm an amateur in terms of global climate change models, but I know a damn sight more about mathematical modelling than most people do. And I'm aware of the, the strength of what the, the scientists and meteorologists do and the weaknesses of the economists. Now... If the economist tells me something, if the economist tells me I've got two hands, I start checking to see whether I have three or not. Okay? <laughs> I know that I, I can't trust them. I'll, if a scientist tells me I have two hands, I'll take it seriously. And even though the models can't be, can't be a perfect prediction of the future, they are fairly reasonably accurate when you backtest them over what's happened over the last 50 or 60 years the predictions of the models for the backtesting match what actually has happened to a reasonable degree of accuracy. And if you extrapolate them forward, then that's where the, that's where the dangers turn up. And a, a, again, people don't seem to realise what can go wrong in climate change. They think, oh, I'm just going to get a bit warmer. I mean, I literally saw some twerp of a mainstream economist 30 or 40 years ago at, at the University of New South Wales when I was a student there. We were all dragged in to go and listen to this guy talk, and he said, well, if global warming increases the temperature in London by two degrees, I'll wear one less cardigan. I thought, you bleeding idiot, because you have no idea what this damn well means. But that, that's the level of simplicity that people have in mind. Now, my best example of what, can, what could actually happen, we don't know it will, but this is what we're playing with, is the work of James Anderson, who's professor of chemistry at Harvard University and was the person who discovered the hole in the ozone layer and led the campaign to fix the hole in the ozone layer over the Antarctic back in the 90s and uh, early noughties. Successful campaign. Now, he argues that when we lose, and it's not a case of if now, it's when, when we lose the Arctic summer sea ice cover, then that region, which reflects 90% of the energy that falls onto it when it's all ice, will instead absorb 90%. And he argues that will mean the three circulation cells in the northern hemisphere break down. Now, that alone is disputed for other scientists. It might not happen just because of the loss of the Arctic. But that then will also mean that storms on the, and this is all, all um, Hansen's research. Remember, he's the expert in the ozone layer. That will mean that storms in the troposphere 
reach into the stratosphere, taking moisture into the stratosphere. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem, except that there's trace amounts of chlorine and bromide in the air you and I are breathing down here in the troposphere, which has no particular impact and not high enough concentrations. But when that gets into the stratosphere, Anderson reckons it'll destroy the ozone layer. Now, that actually happens. Plants will be okay because plants have got much better protection against UV, but animal life, and of course that includes humans, won't be able to go out in the, in the outdoors for most of the day in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, that's good by civilization. Now, do you want to get walk about do you want to do you want to conduct the experiment to see whether it is right or not? What do you well, want to? We, we basically have to walk around with big UV reflecting umbrellas, but presumably Which we can't manufacture. We, we northern animal animal based agriculture would be eliminated. Okay. And the capacity to go outdoors would be eliminated during daylight hours. But we could survive without eating animals. I mean, we just have to develop our. Yeah, okay, yeah, hopium. Thank, thank you for some more hopium. I get plenty <laughs> of it. And, and you'd also have more solar power as well from the higher. Sorry. I mean, that's very funny, but I don't think it's going. I mean, I tell you, let's see who's laughing if it happens after the event. We don't, you're playing with forces which are well beyond the capacity of our civilization to address. And that's mm -hmm. the stupidity of all this stuff. If, if the, 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 the old classic cartoon, what if we make the world a better place and we don't actually have any disasters? You know, it, with all this, all this work for no, for no good reason. The other side is if we don't do the work, then we could have elimination of capacity of human civilization. And that's not a gamble. Oh dear, we choose the wrong. Let's go back and try something else again. This is not. You cannot. You can't go back and and, and change. Now that you found you chose the wrong path, you can't go back and choose the right path. So the flippancy with which people approach this is, to me, frustrating. Yeah. So one thing that concerns me, and obviously you're very passionate about it, of the subject, just by basing on our evil conversations. There's passion on both sides of the well you don't you don't like the word debate there's passions on both sides of climate change right and for me it seems like it's almost a religious thing so like it's not there's not much room for seeing the other side's point of view so there'll be an echo chamber on the research showing climate change to be true scientists don't do religion mm -hmm. okay scientists don't do religion They've got their models. They get the results out of the models. The models may, be, may have problems, but they've back-tested them, as I said, fairly successfully. They haven't been saying, oh, dear, there are huge holes in our models. The holes in the models were in the people who are being confident nothing's going to matter. This is the neoclassicals, economists, who assume uh, you know, things like 87% of the industry will be unaffected because it happens in carefully controlled environments, to quote William Nordhaus. So, so I'm sorry, there's, it's not science, not religion. It's scientists becoming frustrated that their warnings aren't being listened to. They're losing their temper. They're getting angry, and therefore they're doing angry stuff, which is what religious people often do. So you're actually, are you working on a startup with uh, climate change right now? No, I'm working with a group called, uh, I'll be working with, a, with an established uh, activist group in climate change, uh, just trying to show the finance sector has under underestimated the potential dangers of climate change because they followed the economists rather than the scientists without being aware that the economists are not following the scientists. 
and this is where a lot of our disconnect is coming from. We have two, people see the IPCC and the attitude of people who don't have any experience in the academic world is it must be a, a, a collective experience, a collective enterprise. But in fact, the economists and the scientists operate in totally separate bubbles, don't read each other's research. And what the economists say in the IPCC has almost no bearing on what the scientists say. And then if you just cherry pick out what the economists say about IPCC, you're not worried at all. If you cherry pick just what the scientists say, you're terrified. And looking at the two, the more responsible uh, attitude is to be terrified because the economist's work is garbage. So what's, what's, what scares me uh, is that climate change will be hijacked by people that want to control society and by people that don't care about climate change. So a social, I mean, all the stuff about social credit system based on carbon capture or carbon usage, and that, that really scares me, that kind of level of drilling down into your individual uses. That just seems like the people that would, it seems like people that would promote that are more interested in the control rather than climate change itself. There was rationing during the Second World War. Why was there rationing? Because you wanted to minimise the production of silk stockings and increase the manufacturing of silk parachutes. Was that control? Yes, it was. What's the alternative? Learn how to speak German and say Heil Hitler for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. I, see you. I disagree with you. I think you're being naive. And a lot of this, a lot of the anti is being quite naive. Oh, they want to control us. What's the option? It's Mad Max. Which would you prefer? You know, that's that's the sort of choice we're getting ourselves pushing towards. I mean, I see right? your point. Extreme. I see your point. <clears throat> Good. And um, also, if you look at the the control mechanisms during COVID, people are saying we over controlled. We we pushed we too much fear. Up. I'm sorry. No, look, I'm parried. I, I, I know Dianir Bayam. He's a, a colleague of mine, and we've met once or twice. He's the expert on how we controlled Ebola back in 2014. And his point was that we'd actually done a seriously well-managed man, well lockdown. We could have eliminated the virus. And I don't mean got it out of people. I mean destroyed the actual RNA. It would have eliminated with a six-week lockdown. Instead, we had these totally amateur things done by people who didn't know what the hell they're doing, who ended the lockdowns too early, who didn't organise the groups properly. It was total clusterfuck. And because of that clusterfuck, we now have 20 or 30 variants of the one virus hitting around the globe. Uh, there's no chance for herd immunity whatsoever. It's been a total disaster, a total catastrophe. And people are saying you're trying to control us. I mean, you don't control by causing a clusterfuck. You end up with reacting to what the outcome is, and then you survive as best you can. But uh, you know, it, it, it's it, it wasn't. Let's control the population. I've never people calling that a control mechanism. Jesus Christ! I'm sorry. What a bunch of amateurs. One country's doing. Why did I, I left? I left um, the Netherlands in March of 2020, six days after arriving in the Netherlands, because I could see the clusterfuck of the, the, the Dutch trying herd immunity, the British trying herd immunity. I said to my wife, we're getting out of here, we're going to Thailand, where they're doing it properly. And within six weeks of us arriving, because the Thais were doing a very sensible lockdown, and this is before the variants started to evolve, we had six months in Thailand with no domestic cases. Now, if the same level of strictures had been applied at every other country on the planet, there would be no COVID. 
would have been over in less than half a year. Instead, it's going to torture humanity indefinitely, and it's already been going on for coming up to three years now. Well, if, if China had managed it right at the start, we wouldn't have had the exported virus. Well, no, that's too late because by the time we knew it, I mean, like that's one reason I, I, I left the Netherlands. I was looking at the numbers very carefully back in February and March and seeing zero numbers and, and thinking that's crazy because there must have been a tourist leaving Wuhan and landing up in, in the Netherlands because it's the biggest tourist destination in Europe. And sure enough, that's what actually happened. Because it took a week for it to, to, to turn up, you, you can't control it at the source. But once it gets out, everybody, if everybody done China's level of lockdown, yeah, there'd be no virus. I think in my mind that the biggest pain points of, of, the, of um, stories I've heard of the lockdowns and that was people profiteering from deaths in hospitals in, in America. I mean, apparently people were paid more to report a death as COVID just to get the money. I mean, this stuff has to be investigated. If these are really serious allegations, you know, to put yeah, these I mean, people at peace. Like a, I'm sorry, I think that's bullshit. It, it could may be, have happened. but I mean, it may. But like, I'm sorry, this, you, 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 people who people are leaving the medical profession, okay, on in droves around the world because of the impact COVID has had on them, both in terms of their own livelihoods, the stress levels they've gone through, and the lousy pay rates. Uh, to say that they're profiteering out of it, I mean, shit, please. Give me something sensible to, to, to react to. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going off of headlines. Uh, yeah, sense. I know, I know. And you can get any sort of headline you like on the planet now. Um, you know, it's, look at people in the medical profession to be criticising them for profiteering out of COVID and saying, oh, they added, there are more cases there than they, than they put in. <sighs> Sorry. This is, what's, this is what's frustrating if, about if, this. If you're talking people in the finance sector who snort cocaine for lunch, then I can take it seriously. You're talking people in the, in the medical profession who are getting shithouse wages and saying, oh, they're rotting the system. I'm sorry, that's not why they went into the business in the first place. I mean, the frustrating thing is these allegations is not something that I can independently verify. I can't go to America. Yeah, so don't, <laughs> don't even bother repeating them, okay? Why add to the misinformation already? I mean, if it's if it's information if it's misinformation, then of course it's it's really that's even worse crime in a sense. That well, it's. I mean, what what can a little person like myself actually know about these things? You know, and you can't. All right, you can't. You, 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 people are saying, why can't I have a PhD in chemistry? Why can't I have a PhD in physics? Why can't I understand the code but write for GCM? Because you haven't done the PhD. Now, economics, that's my one point of weakness. Economics is garbage. That's why I fight it. It's a nonsense religion. That's why I attack it. But when I look at what's done by climate scientists, when it's done by medical people, yes, there are problems in what they do as well. Evidence-based medicine seems to have a lot of flaws to it too. Uh, they're aware of that. But people say, why can't I understand? I, I can't understand. The, if I get in a bus, I can't understand how the bus engine works. Does that mean I don't hop on the bus? No, I trust that the engineer designed the bus engine properly. You have to accept some things you can't know in the complex society in which we live, and that's 99.9% .9 of the world. You know, if you might understand 0.1% if you're lucky. If you want to understand a simple society, we're going to end up in one the way things are going. I guess I'm still better by how much the whole lockdown's affected my business, so... Yeah, yeah. It's been shithouse for everybody, but again, it's been shithouse management of that. The, the scientists gave the correct advice. 
do a lockdown, do a stage lockdown, take a look at ncoronavirus.org, the website that uh, Yanir put together. He said six weeks of lockdown, you could eliminate the virus from the entire planet. Did we do anything like it? No way. And that's why we're still in the middle of this mess. And it's not the scientists that are blame, it's the politicians and the oh. advisors they have. And that's the amateurism of our political system, which has got to this, not, the, not the amateurness of our scientists. Well, we had, we had two years' worth of lockdown instead of six. So if we ever get a real killer, then nobody's going to want to lock down. Yeah, I know. I know. It's actually <laughs> destroyed the credibility of the idea of a lockdown. But a lockdown with, with masking and effective masking could have eliminated this damn thing. And instead, people say lockdowns don't work. The lockdowns administered by Boris Johnson, of course they don't work. You've got a fool in charge who was talking in favour of herd immunity. Now, if you do your modelling of a pandemic like this, you don't get herd immunity. Okay, Herd immunity would apply if it couldn't evolve. Might apply if it didn't evolve and it, it transmitted much more slowly. But it doesn't. So, you know, if we actually do a proper model of this thing, the, you, you cannot rely upon herd immunity. That would be eliminated as a strategy. But instead, about half the world's governments went straight for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, America, the America, the, most of Europe, all of, all of America, Northern America, all of Europe, you know, go for herd immunity when it doesn't work. Well, that just basically created the variance we're now trying to cope with. Wow, this is really bringing back some, some memories. Um, and I want, I want to try and go to the t- topic that I actually wanted to talk about you in this podcast. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, specifically violence and economics. So I'm in Austria right now where I can walk into a shop and buy a hunting rifle without much of a big deal. If I want a firearm, mm-hmm. I do a little course. Um, I can get hands-on like a Glock and everything like that. But yep. the, the, the gun violence statistics in Austria are much less than someplace like America. Mm-hmm. And my theory is, is that because we have a good social system here in Austria, healthcare, uh, relatively cheap, good um, benefits for people unemployed, then that makes people less likely to resort to crime and violence. Maybe that's a very simplistic view. I just wanted to know what, what your thoughts are on oh, economics. It's also, also the nature of American culture. And America began with the Wild West, okay? The whole idea of manifest destiny. You know, the first thing I did effectively was ex- not, not come close to exterminating the original and human inhabitants of the, of, the, of the continent. And the right to bear arms uh, was there to, take, to fight out the British, you know, the anti, anti-state ad- attitude to tyranny. That's a common thing in, in Europe. And also I think, yes, the lack of social security is a huge element to it because people, uh, America, is, I found they had one tendency I see amongst Americans being neurotic and paranoid. And uh, neurotic, paranoid, and carrying a weapon is a pretty bad combination. So if you're more you know, content, as people in Europe tend to be, then frustrations don't lead to outright violence to anything like the same level. So you know, I'd think it's a combination of the history and the, and the fact that there is social security in Europe where there's not really social security in America. Why do you think that? Europeans are, are more content than Americans? Social security. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that Americans are more paranoid? 
Well, because they don't have social security to begin with, and they have a history of taking guns out to settle arguments. Right, right. They eulogize it. I mean, you know, you, you try to find, go and try and find me a Wild West uh, movie in Austria. Okay. <laughs> Not going to happen. Yeah. You have, you have, you know, narcissism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm not saying they're free of violence, but the individual level of sporadic violence is something which America seems to have uh, at the more individual breakdown level, uh, where you don't see as much of that in in the West, in in Western Europe. Mm. Okay, we've got ten minutes here. I just want to circle back to your um, software engineering project. Mm. Sounded quite interesting. Could you just Give us a little bit more information about that. Well, there's two elements to it. One is my Minsky software, which is open source. And the whole idea of Minsky is that an enormous amount of nonsense is spouted by people about money uh, because modeling money is something economists don't do. They leave money out of their models. So you don't have money or banks or debt in mainstream economic models. And then when people do try to model money dynamically, they're using flowchart software, which makes it extremely hard both to follow and to, to model it. So I built Minsky as a way of using double entry bookkeeping to build models of financial dynamics. And it makes it very easy to see what the logic is. You just need to read a financial, a, a double entry bookkeeping table to see what the flows are. And then the behavior comes out of the structure of the model. And it's like, for example, I can very rapidly show, and I've just done a video on this front, that the mainstream economic idea that banks are just intermediaries who enable a borrower to lend to a saver and so that the debt is an asset of the, of the saver rather than an asset at the bank. Uh, if you flip from that fiction to the real world where banks originate money and debt, then you go from a world where credit doesn't matter to a world where credit is crucial, and that causes the booms and slumps of the economy. So that's, my, that's Minsky. And then I'm building another package called Ravel on top of that, which is going to be a commercial program, and that is for multidimensional data analysis. So it uses a multi-dimensional graphical object I call a Ravel uh, and then enables you to analyze that using all the no-code programming capabilities of Minsky. Uh, so uh, you, you know, rather than having to do pivot tables or spreadsheet formulas, you can do a, a single object, which is multi-dimensional, and flip it and twist it any way you want, combined with others using mathematical operators. And there's no programming involved, but you get a, a hands-on access both of the data and the capacity to manipulate that data graphically. Is that that collaboration with the other programmer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this right. is all done with, uh, with uh, Russell Standish, who's my mm -hmm. uh, programming colleague and close friend and researcher. Research, uh, we do a lot of research together as well. So it's an out outreach of our academic activities. So your um, philosophy in economics, your book, Debunking Economics, have you, have you ever been asked for advice from you know, government level people? Yeah, but normally governments get taken over by neoclassical economists. So I was approached by the New Zealand government, for example, for a long time ago, and I was shot down by the neoclassical staff inside that the, uh, the, uh, the treasury of the New Zealand government, particularly a Scottish a recent PhD graduate, I might add, just out of curiosity. So if you leave it to the economists, they won't allow in any alternative thought if you leave it to the uh, some of the bureaucrats and politicians, you will get some interest in non-orthodox approaches to economics. But the trouble is we have a version of economics which I call Ptolemaic uh, in the age of Copernicus. And, uh, you know, you've got, to get your, you've got to get your Newtonian gravitational ideas past people who believe in flat earth. 
So it makes it rather difficult. I think I asked you something like this in the last podcast. What would you do if you were Rishi Sunak right now in the UK? If I was what? If I was if, if you were the chancellor, I'd, I'd use the, I'd use the government's motor capacity to create money, uh, which is which is this is the big sticking point. The mainstream teaches that the banks have to borrow from the public when they do spending, and therefore government debt is a burden on future generations. It's not. Governments are money creators. Uh, why do you borrow something when you can create it in the first instance? So you don't have the need to balance the books. That's not a, not an essential at all. What you do have is an enormous shock uh, to the capacity to finance their own existence of the poorest 40% of the population. So I'd be using the government's money creation capability to buy, buy energy, build up a buffer, provide energy to people at, uh, at, at, at regulated prices so they don't freeze to death during whenever this winter finally starts over here. So I'd be, you know, it's, it's using the state's capacity to build the infrastructure, which a decade and a half of austerity has almost destroyed. And it's basically saying, we've been making a mistake for the last 15 years, let's reverse it. I thought you were against creating money like the banks do out of thin air because it doesn't create money, just printing money, creating inflation. No, it doesn't. Sorry. I mean, if, if, the, the economy is much more complex than you know, creating money causes inflation. If you, and it's also caught up in the whole fact we've been living in economies that are attempting to grow indefinitely, which itself is a dilemma when you live on a finite planet. So that's, you know, I'm not saying I'm totally, I'm not a growth a growth freak. The Communist Manifesto. Grand, what? Why? Well, that's what the from each, from each according From each according to his ability to each according to his needs, you mean? Yeah, well, Karl Marx doesn't like the fact that you're just growing for the sake of growing, you know, this growth. Yeah, well, Mark, Marx wasn't quite up on the ecological front, but nonetheless, there was an argument about need rather than greed dominating what we do on the planet and we've let greed dominated for too long and now we're paying the price. All right, well, Steve, um, hours a short time. Let's do this again. Any closing thoughts for us today? Don't, don't, economists aren't experts, scientists are. That's probably my main observations and take them seriously because their warnings are going to be coming home to a house, to a home near you very soon. Cool. Well, Steve, thanks very much for your time and uh, look forward to seeing what you come up with next and uh thanks so much for coming on the show welcome okay